Welcome to the Broken to Unbroken podcast with Dr. Nick Askey, where we dive deep into how to eliminate pain and continue to train. All right, welcome back to round two with Life Doc, Dr. Peter Reisenen, and I didn't butcher it this time, I don't think. Uh, and we are going to discuss the pillars of his practice and how he implements some of those into his personal life. Because like me, uh, if he hasn't really tried it on himself like a human guinea pig, he's not going to recommend it to a bunch of people to go try out on their own. Um, so Doc, welcome back. Thanks for getting up early in the morning in your two-hour time difference. Uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks a lot, Nick. Yeah, awesome to be here. I really, uh, really love what you got going on, and uh, I love the audience that you're serving and and the purpose that you're you're here. You're really giving to a lot of people, so it's fun to be here on your on your mission uh, first thing in the morning. So, just to give you. Uh, you listeners, a kind of a zoomed out view of the outline and agenda for this podcast. We're trying to identify pillars of practice and just like general principles and guidelines that and the lens that uh, we take care of people. And the first one is going to focus on fasting and nutrition, and then we'll segue into sleep or resetting the system. Uh, and then talk about movement, inspired movement, um, and then just kind of a lumped category of attitude, having a growth mindset, building good connections, and then working and living with a purpose. So I think it's going to be some great content, and I'm excited to dig into this. So let's start out with um, your approach on fasting and nutrition and how you discovered this and what has influenced you uh, in kind of choosing this route to help manage uh, clinical conditions? Yeah. The, I, so I've always been a student of nutrition and the thing, you know, it it probably stemmed from my own, um, in my own youth being, being, being the kid, you know, being the husky fat, you know, the husky and fat kid who really couldn't fit in no matter what I did. I always felt like I was different than everyone else in that regard. So trying to figure out, and kind of hack that as much as I could growing up. I tried everything from like, you know, Atkins, um, paleo, kind of before it was paleo, I did that. Um, you know, it was more of like a, a meat and veg kind of a diet. Um, and I tried caloric restriction. I tried a lot of different things. And that led me to the the uni, uh, university where I studied nutritional science, uh, really tried to get in and try to figure out and hack some of that stuff and be like, well, what is actually, what's actually behind this? Cause there's a lot of, you know, fad diets and stuff out there. Like what really is out there? And I, and I could say honestly that besides learning the, you know, the molecular and the biochemical aspects of nutritional interaction on the human, on human physiology, um, school gave me such a broad, you know, 20,000 foot overview that it wasn't really super helpful in applying what I didn't come away with like the big aha moment of like, okay, this is how I can apply things. And this is how I can change people's lives. And this is how I can figure it out for myself. Cause we often study things and I did 
to try to figure out myself a little bit more, right? It's a human, human interest in that. And um, left the University of Arizona, kind of like, okay, you know, I was a great student. Um, I, I went there as a non-traditional, like a, you know, 23-year-old student really just wanting to dig in and, and get straight A's and figure it out. And I found Joel Furman's work right at the end about him. Uh, he had an old radio show called Nutritional Wisdom that was on, it was like an old, yeah, it was an old radio show. And I was doing bike rides training for my cross-country bike trip. And uh, I stumbled across his work and started listening to it. And I was like, man, this is a doc who does, he's super scientific about what he does. But yet, you know, because he's like, he's super scientific and he treats people's problems with nutrition. It's like, okay, this is really interesting. So he, he really kind of turned me on to the nutritional, like being a doctor who utilizes nutrition to heal people. And I was like, okay, however he does, like, I want to do what he does. Like, that's really cool. And, um, so that inspired me at the, at the end of the very beginning of my naturopathic school, you know, like before my first year of naturopathic medical school to actually get in touch with Joel Furman via email on a very inspired moment, he wrote me an email back and said, Hey, I'd love to, ha I said, I'd love to come out and join you. You've, you, you, you influenced my life because I implemented his principles in my life and it just changed my life drastically. There was nowhere like, no more like, you know, no more kind of fad dieting. It was just like, do this stuff because this works, this is good for you and just have a blast with it. And, um, so anyways, told him I wanted to emulate him. I wanted to learn how he does things. And he made a huge impact in my life. You know, I'd love to come out and shadow him and learn from him. When could I come out and do that if it, if it were possible? And I got an email back the next day and it was like, come on out. I'd love to have you. You have a place to stay. And I was like, uh, wow, I was not expecting that. So this was before he was like, you know, the, um, like the, uh, I, I guess you could say like the, nutritional genius that people portray you know that have him now where he's got these six you know new york times best-selling books and stuff like that he didn't he had eat to live that was published and you know a couple other ones like um disease proof your child and fasting and eating for health but those were the ones that he had out but he wasn't like a big big name he was big but he wasn't like a big big name yet so yeah you caught him right before his Malcolm Gladwell tipping point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what it was, Nick. Yeah. So caught him then. Maybe you were what, maybe you spurred his, his uh, tipping point, man. Uh, I don't know, man. It was, it was <laughs> such a fun time. You know, I, so how it worked, he's like, yeah, come on out. I, he, he asked around his employees and I found a, uh, I had a place to stay for two months. I went out there and hung out in, in Jersey um, in Flemington at his office, went in every single day, kind of beat the staff in and just like was in there with the first person, sat in uh, with he and also Dr. Benson, who works with Joel C's patients. And the practice was super unique. I mean, that was where I realized like, this is what I want to do. And, but he either, it's a very unique practice in the fact that people are coming, you know, and they're, they're coming with a specific issue and they, they know that they're going to utilize, you know, nutrition as the primary modality. They're going to order, of course, do all the blood work and a unique sequence of 
that they followed when they saw each patient, you know, to kind of go through their process. And I was like, I really like this process. I really like what they're doing. And uh, walked away from those two months having helped research the figure, you know, figure out what they wanted to put in their multiple vitamin, which is something that Joel was kind of working on when I was there. He, he didn't have one. So he was working on making an ideal multiple vitamin um, at that point. And so I was just kind of helping out with some of that and sat in a lot of lots and lots and lots of appointments. So I can honestly say Joel has been the biggest influence in my nutritional career because he's got so much science but at the same time you know for for a guy like me who doesn't want to have to get in you know get stuck in the dingweeds with the research anytime I like look up something that he's gotten and he's researched and I I grab his references it's like oh wow this is like a legitimate like amazing reference you know this isn't like so that was the stuff that kind of turned me on to nutrition now Joel that being said, Joel and I are still friends to this day. We write emails, call if I need anything, you know, and it was my goal to work with him after school. Um, but I ended up, that fell through. We had a kind of a plan. It was a loose plan because um, I spent, I went out there a second time during medical school for an internship and spent a, a good solid week with him. And we had a, we had a great time. And I told him that I was like, I'm going to work for you. He's like, I think we can make that work. So it's kind of fun. I think at some point we will do something together. I'm not exactly sure what. Um, you know, and we are different. We're, we're different people, obviously, but we have the same um, some same mindset around some of some of the things that we do. But so he turned me and I asked him when I was there. I said, so I was kind of reading fasting and eating for health, and I'm like, so this whole fasting thing, like, do you promote it? Recommend it? He's like, you know, he's like, I don't do, I don't fast people because, you know, I I don't have an inpatient place and all that. And it was a ton of work. So then he told me about True North and I was, and he was like, yeah, go, you know, go check that place out and go do, you know, I didn't, I was the first medical doctor doing internship at True North. And, um, he was in the same medical school class as like, uh, Dr. Oz. So he, and that's how he and Dr. Oz are, are friends because they, they went to school together. But so he, he told me about True North and, um, I contacted Alan Goldhammer. It was in my first year of school, and he's like, "Well, we don't take students unless they're like a fourth year, or third year." And I was like, "I was like, whoa, 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 wait a second. I'm I'm different. I was like, I've worked in the hospital for five years. I've got good patient bedside manner. Um, I know what I'm doing, and um, trust me, you'll take me. You won't regret regret it." So after my first year of medical school, I went to True North and spent a whole summer learning fasting under under Alan Goldhammer, Peter Sultana, who's like their main guy, their main doc at True North. He's just, he's just a wizard when it comes to medicine. And, um, and then Michael Clapper, who is there. Um, and a couple, there was a couple other docs there. Of course, the other docs who rounded, um, there was still Erwin Lindsner is a chiropractor who works there. Um, and then there was, there was, I'm, I'm blanking on a couple of the other names here. Um, there's a couple other docs there. Anyways, that summer was amazing. That summer was amazing because to like, okay, you can see how fat, you can see how nutrition works, but if you want to see like the sped up, like fast forwarded version of people getting well, put them on a fast for a period of time, you know, and, and supervise that, do an amazing job with it. You know what I, and those are the, the results you get are amazing with a fast. Now, 
does that mean that people can just go off a fast and kind of do whatever they want? Well, no, their issues are going to come back. Um, but it's like you can get the results that people got. I mean, anything from like even, you know, chronic headaches to lupus to, you know, cardiovascular disease, um, MS, you know, I mean, you could have skin conditions, skin eruptions of various kinds. Um, we saw people with, uh, we saw people with autoimmune conditions. There are lots of autoimmune conditions, um, people with type two diabetes, pre-diabetes, you know, these diseases of excess in society. And that was just really powerful for me to see the effect of fasting on human physiology, watching people get well, already knowing that if people change their nutritional, you know, changed changes their nutrition quite a bit they'd probably get the same benefits but it would just take a little bit longer so fasting was like the really really sped up version of like how do you get well in a really quick amount of time yeah and i explain it to people fasting is a very quick control alt delete for your computer or your system but if you reboot the system and then you go clicking on Nigerian prints emails right after you reboot it, you're still going to go back to where you were. Right. Yes. Very good analogy. Yep. Very good analogy on that. I mean, it's, it is the control alt delete. You know what I mean? I mean, nothing like people checking in at true North and, and having prepped for a couple days before the fast, you know, like, so kind of more of the basics of fasting, checking in where it's like, all you've eaten is stuff that's going to clean out your intestines and your colon. So it's all high fiber, high vegetable matter. Um, it, you know, they, they would say, you know, no, um, no to minimal, minimal to like, they would actually say no animal products, um, even no nuts and seeds, no grains, like no, none of that stuff. Just, just vegetables and fruits, just clean out the system. Totally. Um, lots of bowel movements, lots of fiber, lots of water. And then, Two days after that, you get started on your fast and just watching people go from like, you know, I mean, totally withdrawing from caffeine, you know, all these foods that they used to be eating, um, just as it, you know, as addicted as ever to kind of the first three days of the fast, water fast, you know, drinking, drinking enough water. Um, we're checking in on them twice a day, which is kind of like whole feeling their pulse, asking them how they're doing, asking them if they're lightheaded how often they've been going to the restroom, if they've been having any difficulties, have they been sleeping okay, you know, really checking in on, and then all those kind of keying into more physiological things that we're just kind of looking to make sure they're not in the danger zone with anything really, you know, like medical physiology wise. What kind of timeline are you, are you fasting people? Is it individualized? Cause there are some people that are like, Oh, I fast between bites of food. I'm uh, in, there's a lot of different models. There's the 16-8, there's the, there's the 2-1, there's the 5-2, uh, there's the quarterly three to five day fast. So there's a lot of different models and I'm sure it's different than the uh, safe to do at home models versus the, okay, you're being supervised by multiple uh, medical professionals and kind of put a disclaimer on this for our listeners like this yes. was a medically advised supervised fasting program so don't go hey go hey the life doc said uh i should go this many days just drinking water and not eating any food uh because you aren't being supervised you may have some contraindications on your blood work or physiologically to fasting so i just wanted to preface that but i'm i am curious as to what the 
this patient presents with this. So let's fast them for this amount of time or until they hit these markers. So can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah. And I think the, um, so, so someone comes in, you know, we do intake, you know, they've got to be screened for fasting. So Alan Goldhammer would do screening over the phone. I mean, he would pretty much make sure that people were like coming to the facility, that they were even legitimate, you know, fasting worthy people. So he would say, implement this kind of nutrition stuff at home for the net, you know, if they called like a month in advance and sometimes people would implement nutrition things and they wouldn't even, they'd call in, you know, in a month and say, actually, I don't even need to come in. I've gotten better, you know, or so much better that I'm just going to wait and see if this doesn't resolve. So that's always something to do too, is to implement the nutrition stuff first, get all that lined up and see if that helps. Now, if that doesn't, and you're like, well, I still need this. I still, I still want to take it to the next level. You know, that's where you, so what we would do is we would have, do an intake with someone where you're essentially like a doctor's visit where you're, you're talking, where you, you do, you, you know, you give all your issues that are going on. We do a great physical exam, ask lots of questions, get down, kind of down to it. Ask if you're on any medicines. You can't fast on any medic medication unless it's like thyroid medicine. And that's what you, you cut that in half when you fast because we're, we're not trying to keep it. Uh, we don't want. We want the metabolism to slow down appropriately, and you can become overthyroid. You can have too much thyroid hormone on board um, it, during a fast because everything kind of slows down during a fast. So you have to go appropriately with that, um, you know, and really making sure that someone doesn't have, you know, someone's not pregnant. They don't have like hemochromatosis, or you know, they're not type one diabetic, or they don't have failing kidney function. You know, their kidney function's awesome. You know making sure that there's, there's, you know, these different parameters are kind of in place for these people and that they're not on any medicines. If they're, if they are, then we got to wean them off safely first. So sometimes that might start a month or two months or three months before they even come to true North or, or wherever they're being fasted and, and then clearing them to fast and then giving them the actual prescription for fasting. So for each person, it's going to be unique and different. So there's three contraindications or there's three ways to three reasons to break a fast for somebody. And now we're talking about a water-only fast. Uh, it's prescribed with the intention of the person only being at complete rest, um, which can include some very small, you know, walking at True North. We had a courtyard and people could walk around the courtyard or being in different, you know, maybe walk around the block if they were given permission to do so. Um, but we need to keep our eyes on them because it's just a medical liability but at the same time, in a state of fasting, you are trying not to push uh, the body into breaking down as much muscle tissue as possible. So we'll talk about the biochemistry of fasting here in a little bit. But at at this at the level of getting people cleared, telling them what to do, making sure they know the rules, like no working out, um, you really got to to maximize the benefits, to minimize the potential downsides to the fast. Being at rest, drinking enough water. You don't need to guzzle, guzzle water because water, we don't want you to dilute all your electrolytes and your, you know, your serum electrolytes, or your blood electrolytes in your blood either. But drink enough water um, and sleep plenty. A lot of people will have a, you know, a, a you know, um, somewhat of a moving experience, somewhat sometimes too spiritually, but not, that's definitely not guaranteed. Definitely no euphoria guaranteed with a fast either. That happens to some people, but that would be overselling a fast if I did that. Um, 
And so getting people into a fast, that could last anywhere from a few days to 40 days. So we kind of capped it at 40 because we figured, well, Jesus fasted for 40 days, so might not want to push that. <laughs> um, <laughs> just kind of kind of give it a hard stop at 40. Now, if someone wanted to, say someone had lupus or an autoimmune disease and they're really working hard at it and they get a lot of progress and a lot of resolution over 40 days, there comes a point during a fast where you're like, okay, blood work and being around the person and seeing enough fasting, you, you kind of get an idea of when a person might need nutrient repletion. So when might be the time to stop a fast to keep it safe and say, you know what, let's refeed you over the course of the next couple weeks. Um, and then, you know, or, or for the next few months, and I want you to come back in six months and we're going to attack this with another maybe 40 day fast, for example. Yeah, that's interesting because you you've seen some of the science with like Walter Longo uh, with the fasting mimicking diet, and he's actually done studies to where like the the organs actually shrink during a fast, and they will actually return to normal size as you kind of replete nutrients, and that's has a a very potent healing and regenerating effect. Interesting, yeah, and. Walter Longo, I mean, his research is just awesome. I, I love looking at stuff that he's, he's been, he's been turning, you know, like Alan Goldhammer says, he goes, you know, I was a total, I was a total and complete, I was known as a total and complete quack. And now I'm like a cutting edge scientist with fasting. He goes, it's kind of crazy how that happened. But anyways, you know, uh, it's, it is funny how this research has come out now with, you know, with, uh, Walter Longo and, True North is doing research with the Buck Institute. I think they're doing something with USC. They're doing something with Mayo. Um, they're doing with a lot of different research now. And of course, a lot of it's getting paid for because they're looking for drugs that can kind of do the same thing as a fast. But either way, they're able to get this research done, which is really neat. So they're looking at a lot of like prolonged fasting. What do they expect? They're, I was a part of a study and I didn't, I don't know. They haven't really, they don't think they've published it yet, but they, did all my baseline biomarkers and, you know, BIA and they drew, you know, blood and they did, you know, analyzed a bunch of different things. They analyzed my stool samples because they're looking at how the microbiome changes with fasting with down regulation of like the pathological um, biomes and upregulation and growth of these, of, it's kind of like modulation of the gut microbiome just with fasting, which is really cool. So they're looking at that. Um, and just how your physiology changes and how your, you know, how things reset with, with prolonged fasting. So they're talking more like over, you know, 10 days and beyond. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. So they're, they're doing a lot of work with that. So it's interesting. Yeah. You could, like I said, you could have someone come in for three days. You could have someone come in for 40. And the thing is, is when someone comes in, they have to be open to the fact that they aren't the ones running their fast. They are there because they're being supervised. And we've seen so many fasts. I've fasted around 1,000 people or so. So it's like what, what I've seen trumps what you think you might know about yourself. Okay, People come in and they'll say, well, I know my body. I'm going to push through this. And I'm like, you're really in the danger zone right now. I don't really feel comfortable fasting you now that you, you are going to take this under your own, you know, take this into your own hands. So at the same time, there needs to be that willingness to listen to the provider who is 
running the fast and saying, you know, there's, cause there's, a, there's gotta be some humility there. I'm like, I don't know everything I could know about fasting. This person's seen however many people he, he knows he's seen people go to the hospital, you know, because maybe they've pushed themselves too much or they've refed too fast or whatever else. So, you know, I've seen that too. And I've, you know, gone with people to the hospital. No, no one's died at true North, but Alan Goldhammer says statistically they're over their, 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 uh, their odds are, they're uh, they're working uphill on those odds right now because they that shouldn't you know he said you fast that many people it's not because of the fasting but you see enough people eventually you're gonna have somebody who passes away but he's like well thank God we've been doing screening or something right because that hasn't happened yeah and what would be your uh, you can approach this one of two ways or both like what are the biggest mistakes you see for people that may not be super closely supervised on a refeed. Um, and also like, what are your guidelines for the refeed piece? Cause it seems like a very vital part cause that's what you're doing to kind of go, okay, I have a totally clean slate. How am I going to write the, my next chapter after all of this grueling effort to, to clean out the system? Yeah, it's a great question. So, the, the refeed is in, it is the most important part. I would, it's, it's like literally like you're saying, it's your, it's your new slate that you're writing on. So you really need to create something that's, that's good. And at the same time, you want to restart your digestion positively. I know people who have broken their fast terribly and have suffered the consequences big time. And we know it's the only way you can kill someone with food. So refeeding syndrome is a terrible sequence of events in which the person you know, in the end, what ends up happening is multi-system organ failure and death. So we really need to take this, um, you know, responsibly and seriously. So the refeeding portion, essentially, when you look at refeeding someone after a prolonged fast, and we're talking about like over three days, you're really kind of taking it gradually when it's over three days. Um, even, even within, I would say within any fast, you should kind of break it back gradually and how the general progression goes like this. I'll, and I'll give the, the, the overview and then I'll kind of break it down a little bit more. The overview is more like a juice to kind of wake up the system a little bit and not, it doesn't, it can be veg, it, you know, like a veggie juice more or less or something like that, but to kind of get the gut working again, because what happens with the fast is the gut kind of goes to sleep. And so we need it's almost like after surgery where, you know, you get anesthetized and kind of the guts go to go to sleep, but we need that to wake up. So in order for you to put food in there, that needs to be working, fun, you know, and operating. So we'd start with like juice, then we'd start with, you know, uh, raw fruits and vegetables because those have the fastest transit time, meaning from, from, from in your mouth to coming out as a bowel movement. So they have the fastest transit time. So that's where we want to kind of start to get things woken up and they're low in calories. So anything that's low in calories is going to be more important uh, in the beginning. Okay. So um, nutrient dense, water rich foods and uh, are going to be important. And then after that, so, so you got juice, then you've got fruits and vegetables, then you've got cooked fruit, cooked vegetables. Um, they just have a little bit longer of a transit time and they're just a little bit more calorically dense. Not typically too much of an issue if it's like steamed zucchini or whatever, but either way. Then beyond that, um, then you would get into things like cooked, if someone wants to you know, reintroduce cooked starches, that would be the next place because those are going to be more calorically dense and they're going to have a slower transit time. 
Um, and then beyond that, it's going to be like the nuts and seeds, the higher fat content type things too. And because we're asking for another whole layer of, of, of GI involvement where you're getting the lipases and a lot of the, you know, the pancreas to kick in and kind of the order of operations for this one is, um, it's just kind of order of operations as far as like getting your, your gastrointestinal system back up and functioning. So this way works really well. Then you can kind of, mo you, you know, and then after that you can add in, if you wanted to add in something else, you could add in something else after that. You know, if there's some animal products or something that you want to add back in, fine. Then that would do that after that last step, because at that point, you know, it could go for, and we also don't want to put too much food in with the refeed. So you want to just eat, you know, kind of like your standard three meals, more or less, um, and just have enough, but don't eat too much of them because you, you like they're, you know, with hormonally, you're going to be driven to eat more food because you haven't been eating as much. Some people say, oh, I, I'm driven to eat less. Well, I know a lot, most people are going to just presume that you're going to want to eat more, but practice some self-restraint. So don't eat too much because the first thing is you think about it, your first bowel movement might be four days out. Okay. So if that's the case, putting in all this food is only going to cause you so much distress if you're eating way too much food, quantity. So put in enough to just kind of get things going. We're just trying to stimulate peristalsis and get your guts working again. Um, don't eat too much, but eat the right stuff as well. Because So let me talk about refeeding syndrome. And so refeeding syndrome is something that happened like during World War II when the soldiers were liberating people from like concentration camps and things like that, the soldiers would break open their MREs and give, you know, the, um, the concentration camp, re you know, person that they were rescuing from the, the camp, they would give them like a chocolate bar or something. Well, what ends up happening with that is you get someone who's been so chronically malnourished or in a fasted state, they're not, they're, they're two, they're two separate things, but at the same time, you, you have kind of similar, situation going on where the body's responding will respond similarly which is where insulin goes up and what ends up happening when insulin goes up which happens with high protein or or glucose or even sometimes even just with high calories there's some other things that go on uh, physiologically but what ends up happening is is that insulin goes up and there's a certain amount of potassium that's in the bloodstream that's just like needed for you know for cardiac function and vital you know nerve conduction and a lot of different just the workings of the body potassium being one of those really really important electrolytes but normally there's a lot of it inside of the cells okay it's primarily intracellular well during a fast you deplete the amount of intracellular potassium in it and but your serum levels or your your blood, your blood levels stay pretty regulated. What happens with the refeeding syndrome is you have the spike in insulin or a relative spike, meaning it maybe it won't be that high, but it's higher than what it was when you were fasting. That drives potassium into the cells, which deplete, which puts you into like a hypokalemic or a low potassium, low blood potassium state. What that ends up doing is it ends up throwing off your heart so you can have a cardiac arrhythmia and it shuts down, starts shutting down your organs one at a time. So that's yeah, the problem. It's never a good thing. Yeah, never a good thing, right. So 
And, um, you know, I've heard some other horror stories with, with breaking refeed too. I mean, there was a guy at True North who came in, he said he broke it with rice and beans. He was just so hungry and salsa. He has Hispanic heritage and he was like, oh man, I just, rice and beans and salsa sounded like the game. He was just like, he, he just, in this moment of weakness on day, like 10 of a, seven or 10 of a fast. And he said it was like a hairy tennis ball that took like a whole day to roll from his mouth all the way to his anus. And it, it was so painful. He said the whole way, every turn of the ball in his gut just was like, it was just excruciatingly painful. He said he was like rolling around in the yard for like a day. It was just, it was so, and he, you know, what we would recommend if someone introduced something too fast was like, well, we just need to fast until the pain goes away. So there's no like quick way to speed it up or anything like that. No, you don't you want to go for emergency surgery or anything. You just need to wait for an entire day, but it's really painful. So anyway, yeah, we, we want to make sure that we avoid all that stuff, all that the negative things. We want to break it in a sequential pattern. Um, to, so I, like I said, low calorie, um, low calorie stuff with generally increasing the calories as the days go on is kind of the general gist and viewpoint of of this to prevent those problems so it sounds like you have a broad variety of conditions that you're you're really managing with this protocol can you explain like physiologically why this environment is so potent in fixing or at least improving the quality of life in in the internal environment for anything from like uh ms to to type two diabetes to, and, and just physiologically why this is a favorable thing to do for a wide variety of conditions. Well, it's interesting. I got in, I, when, when I started doing all, you know, get, got to true North, I just, I really realized that by allowing the body to reset by just not putting anything in, we had this innate the body has almost, if you want to like you know, what is it called? Personify or, or make, um, you want to like, you want to give, there's a term for it. What I'm trying to say is like, if you want to treat the anthropomorphized. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Anthropomorphize or make the body into like, quote unquote, like a human, right? Like what we would think or make it think it's not really thinking. It's just acting. Right. But when you can take away all of these excesses and you can just let the body start to function. What ends up happening physiologically is there's so much blood flow that's going to our gut all the time for digesting food and for all these functions that we're doing related to digestion. What ends up happening when you're in a fasted state is now all of that blood and all of the, your, your vital processes in your body can go to doing all the house cleaning and housekeeping so to speak, that have been needed to be done for a very long time. So it, it can be safe to say that if someone did a periodic, you know, a periodic uh, couple day fast or something like that, and they were okay to do it, they would, you know, this is kind of where you take the practicality and it's like, well, what would that look like on a practical scale? Sometimes someone needs to go in for a prolonged fast, but, you know, if someone's healthy and they're well, you know, they've got a and you know they've got a good body mass they're not really way overweight things like that it it would probably be you know depending on people's conditions or whatever but overall like for myself i do a periodic periodic fast and i'm like last time i actually had some tingling in my toes which is kind of interesting 
And I'm kind of like, oh, interesting. I want to actually address this with a longer fast next time. So I'm like, okay, I should probably do a couple weeks next time. I'm probably going to have to go to, in, in, you know, be an inpatient or whatever to do something like that, to just be supervised, even like, you know, I know the, the processes, but it's nice to have someone bring you things. But you have this internal work going on. So it's essentially the machinery in your body goes to healing. You know, your, your NK cells are activated. So that's why, like, NK cells are there to fight infections and, and, and viruses and things like that. So there's a whole lot of, of mechanisms that are in place. And Walter Longo speaks to it very elaborately in his papers about all of the, all of the different things that are upregulated and downregulated. Um, in his in his paper, but I think the main thing is that I mean, if you, someone wants that five thousand foot overview, it's really like digestion's not happening. You've got all this blood and all these enzymes and different processes now that you can go to work on yourself. And there's people who came to True North. They're like, I didn't remember that I had. Yeah, I got injured when I was twenty five. I was playing, you know, football in college, and I had this injury. And now today, like. 20 days into my fast or whatever, like my, my ankle, like, or whatever, my ankles or my knees or these things are starting to ache, you know? And there's like, it's almost like they're, you know, in naturopathic medicine, we talk about healing happening in the reverse order that it occurred. So it's kind of like the most recent stuff, your body's going to work on that first. And then the older stuff, you'll eventually get there if you give your body enough time to actually get down and work on that stuff. So you get long enough into a fast and people have healing going on that they really didn't even realize they were going to have, which is really cool. Yeah. Is, is your clinic primarily like home directed fasting, nutritional interventions, or do you have an inpatient piece? I don't have an inpatient piece. No, it's just, it's just home. And I actually don't utilize a whole lot of fasting right now, unless someone's really like a really well person. They want to. They want to do. You know, there's just too much risk with fasting. I've seen too many crises mm -hmm. on day three. Now I work having been the resident there. I mean, getting waking up at two in the morning by someone who's having, you know, anxiety. You know, because their mind is just racing, and it's day three during a fast. It's like then you have to quickly interpret. Like, hey, is this an actual medical emergency, or is this person just anxious? And a lot, and almost every time, it's just you know anxiety or something like that. So. There's a, there's that piece that if, if we had an inpatient, like a goal, like a goal, goal for me would be to have something inpatient, but like maybe like a six bedroom house or something like that, where people can come and stay and take respite and do a fast. And there's not a ton of people. True North now has up to like 60 something people. And that's just, I feel like it gets out of hand too quick or there's just too much work for people. If you're the doc in charge of a lot of these patients as the resident, it was just a lot of work. So I realized that in a smaller setting, it might be therapeutic. But in this setting right now, what I'm, I'm, I do in my office, I do out, it's, it's outpatient stuff that I'm doing. So I'm giving them nutrition plans for, you know, for their conditions and things like that. Sometimes I'll say, I'll, I'll introduce that. That's where the modified fasting and stuff can come into play where you're like, you know what? I just want you to go home. I want you to take rests from eating too, because I think we're eating all the time. So it's like, if you can go to bed hungry or whatever, if you can skip, you know, maybe you can skip dinner, like you can have breakfast and lunch and then you skip dinner and then you have, you know, breakfast maybe or whatever, just kind of extending that period of time between meals, which is like restricted feeding essentially. Um, 
you can get a lot of good benefit out of that too. So you don't need to get as extreme as, um, as extreme as water fasting. Now, if someone needs to do that, I would definitely recommend sending them to places like True North or there's a place called the Fast Fast Fasting Escape, I think it's called, in Southern California that started up. Um, Nathan Gershfeld, he might be a person that you know, you'd be interested in visiting with, but he has a place in Southern California and they do prolonged fasting there. He worked at True North for many years. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. We'll have to look him up. So what does your typical nutrition plan look like for your average demographic patient? That's, yeah, that's a good question. So my average client population is, you know, autoimmune disease of some sort, digestive problems or type two diabetes. And if I was to just, you know, I'm going to generalize quite a bit on this one, but I would say it's primarily, it's like 90%, um, 90% probably 95% plant-based for the most part. It's, it's a new, it's more of a nutritarian plan if you want to think about it that way. So Joel Furman's coined term, which is more of more plants. So lots of vegetables, lots of greens, you know, big salads, cooked vegetables, um, moderate amount of, you know, fruits, depending on people's conditions and whatever else too. I always say have it with the meal to decrease the, you know, like the impact of blood sugars and whatever else, but eat it with the meal. Um, and then beans being an important part of it, legumes mainly for the, the second meal effect for my diabetes patients. And for people who are trying to lose weight, it's like a, it's a clincher because it lowers their blood sugars typically by about 20 to 30 points the following day if they have beans today. So that's a really nice side effect of having those, um, along with the fiber and the extra protein. And then, and then um, nuts and seeds being an important part. And if they want to have animal products, I have I, I try to encourage them to have it in condiment portions and, you know, maybe three to four times a week or whatever now. So that's that's a real general, real general plan. From there, it can kind of branch out either way. Like, of course, I meet the patient where they're at. So if they come to me and they're like, you know, they're, <clears throat> they're, a, they're a meat and potatoes person, Maybe it's just like we just introduced them having a salad every day as well. You know, maybe it's the one change, maybe one thing, and they start seeing the benefit and then they go, hey, what else can I do? You know, so kind of that, that aspect too. But, and then for digestion and things, I, another thing that I really, I really love to use is I love to use bitters for people to stimulate digestion. So before meals, there's herbs that are called bitters and bitters can be very useful in setting off that whole cascade of prepping the body for the food that's to come. So that can actually help the digestion and assimilation of food dramatically and de decrease the amount of symptoms. I, bitters are, are often in like an, in like an alcohol based tincture. So if someone's got, it, you can get them in a glycerin format too, but before a meal, 15 minutes or 10 to 15 minutes before putting like five drops of bitters under your tongue will really stimulate that whole, all the parasympathetic activities that are associated with di preparation for digesting food, which I feel like a lot of people eat now and they're not really in that parasympathetic state. So of course for me, having them being in a sitting place, taking time away from their phone, away from their computers, just going and actually just enjoying their meal is a really important thing. Not to eat in front of the TV, 
all that. So setting up their nutrition in a place where they actually, it feels conducive to enjoying their food, not eating when they're stressed, you know, not eating standing, sitting down, you know, because by just by the virtue of the act of standing, you're kind of in a more of a sympathetic, sympathetic dominant position rather than sitting, which is a little bit more parasympathetic. So just to kind of a few things like that, but using bitters in the beginning before a meal can really help some people. And sometimes it's interesting, like with reflux, people might think that they have got too much stomach acid on board, but actually they don't have enough. So it's really interesting. They can be taking acid blockers and things like that. But if you take that acid blockers away sometimes and give them bitters, all of a sudden their digestion's good, you know, and things start working well. When in reality, what was happening is the stomach was sloshing all that stuff around and squeezing it and trying to like really break it down. And it was staying in the stomach for such a long time because they didn't have enough acid. And so it was refluxing back up. And so they have all kinds of, you know, really, I feel like bitters can really help the general population. If generally well people for the most part, but really who want to enhance their digestion and very, very cheap and effective remedy um, because, you know, all the PPIs and acid blockers and stuff that people are using cause so many other downstream effects, you know, like dementia with B12 deficiency and, and, um, you know, we're looking at other things like osteoporosis, um, you know, there's, there's a whole host of, of malabsorption kind of things that, you know, we need stomach acid for different things. So if we don't have stomach acid, we don't have that whole cascade of activities going on, but, but the general nutrition plan, I just went on a little tangent, but the nutrition plan is pretty, pretty generalized. I do like them if they're going to have animal products, which, which a lot of my people do. And, you know, I even have some animal products here and there. I'm like on the, um, I, I myself personally would recommend like game meat if someone had game. So say someone was like a, you know, an elk hunter or, um, was able to be able to procure their own. That would be awesome. That's not, that's not the general population at large. Um, but something that's more, uh, lean and wild. Um, and then, you know, wild caught, wild caught salmon or lean fish, things like that. If someone's going to have something like that, I think that's, it's totally fine too, you know, or, or, uh, you know, pasture, pastured beef or something like that. Um, having some of that here and there isn't going to be, it shouldn't be too much of an issue. Now, if someone's really trying to reverse a condition or whatever else, sometimes I'll, I'll make a little bit more of a push to kind of keep sometimes things as a condiment or something like that a little bit more, but, but I, you know, I, I've seen all kinds of these nutrition plans work for people. And I know that there's not, it's not a one size fits all approach. That's for sure. Yeah. You have the, the whole range of like from your approach, uh, and then the more radical plant-based approaches all the way to like the carnivore diet where people are eating like three ribeyes a day right, and right. they're eating no plant matter. I think the commonality there is uh, I think some of these diets work because you're giving the body less of a diverse macronutrient range to work off of. So it gets really good at assimilating those particular macronutrients and the micronutrients associated with them to, um, to use, but also the fact that uh, none of these 
effective diets have a ton of processed matter in them, not a lot of artificial additives. Uh, and a lot of them have the common uh, thread as like, all right, eat real food. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, e eating real food. Uh, what's the saying? Eat real food, not too much. Um, and then mostly, mostly plants. plants. Yeah. The in defense of food from Michael, Michael Pollan, right? Michael Pollan's book. And that quote's kind of gone everywhere, but yeah, I, I like that quote. I mean, it's, you know, and so we don't see any vegan populations out there really that have been researched that are, you know, we see like, you know, there's, there's groups like the, uh, the, the book, the blue zones, the research that was done by Dan Butner and things like that kind of looking at these long lived populations and stuff like that and what they're doing and whatever else. So kind of just more extrapolating from epidemiologic data. I mean, with nutrition, it's really hard to just put someone in a silo and say, you know, eat this one thing or do this one thing. And, and I also have, I have, a, I have a, I guess you could say you can call me more of like a person who believes that we all are different. And at the same, on the same token, there's a lot of things that work generally, but at the same time, if someone feels like something is working for them and we can, we can't find evidence that it's working against them. It's like, okay, got it. You know? So really being, I find that practitioners being open-minded to what their clients are doing and working with them instead of just trying to put their own plan on them. It's really, uh, it's really a more effective strategy to kind of be open to what other people think too, at the same time of like, if you can educate them in a way and they're like, oh, okay, I want to change that or I want to do that, that's nice, but I never force anybody to do anything in, in my practice. So they usually either buy into something or they buy into part of it or, you know, or they're going to stick with what they're doing. So I find that it's partially my job to help tell them what or to educate them with my, you know, my whiteboard and things in my office about like maybe why they might want to try something. So, yeah. So, is there anything else you wanted to add before we springboard into the sleep and resetting uh, pillar? Uh, nope. That's pretty much good. Nutrition nutrition and fasting, we covered it. So what are your general like education points for your patients on sleep and how it's essential for the system and why it's important? Because I, I just preface it with my patients going, okay, do you believe that evolution is a, is an effective process? And they're like, yeah, it makes us better. It makes us more adaptive to our environment. And I was like, okay, if we look at sleep from a purely evolutionary perspective, uh, you're very vulnerable because someone can sneak up on you. An animal can sneak up on you and kill you while you're sleeping. You're not spreading your genes around when you're asleep, maybe right before sleeping, but not while you're asleep. Uh, and then like it, it you're, you're spending a third of the time that you're on the planet in an unproductive from an outward like viewpoint. If you're just looking at it from like, Hey, that guy's sleeping, he's not doing anything, but wouldn't that be selected against to where wouldn't we develop a, a benefit of like, Hey, this person is going to be more selected for because they don't have to sleep and they can get a lot more done. They're a lot more productive. They're out there like Genghis Khan spreading their genes all over the world. But it's not so because every animal sleeps. There's no animal that does not sleep. So 
it is important. Otherwise, evolution would have selected against it. So that's how I kind of explain it to my patients without going into a lot of the physiology, which you can. But how do you portray the value of sleeping? Well, you know, I, I keep an interactive chart with a lot of my clients with their weight and their vital signs and all that kind of stuff and their blood sugars or different things. And I kind of check in on that. And one thing, common theme that I notice is that if, if people don't get their sleep, um, then everything else suffers. All their blood work suffers, their blood sugars suffer, everything else just starts suffering. And they, so it's a real practical thing for them to see that and be like, oh, wow. And I'll say, yeah, you went to bed at 1.30 last night. Look at that. You know, and it's kind of like they know, though, I don't need to even say that. Like they see it and they'll comment in their comment section. Oh, yeah, I went to bed really late last night. And so they start to see the impact of what they're doing on their physiology. And I'll be like, you know, you've still got insulin resistance. We're working at reversing that right there. But your sleep habits aren't helping, for example. Um, and so that brings it to the real practical level for them of like, okay, seeing it. And so I think that we should all wake rested without an alarm clock, ideally. Um, I'm not at that stage yet. I use an alarm clock, but, but I think that if we could dial it in to be more my ideal about it, I mean, getting to bed at a time where we wake up fully rested and ready to go the next day, kind of with, without the alarm clock, that would be the, the ideal scenario. Um, but everything kind of happens at night. Like we have such a, a hormonal milieu of things that happen. And, and I see people who, are sleep deprived who aren't using their CPAPs or they're not doing whatever they need to be doing for sleep, they're, you know, they're, we see that everything ends up suffering from it. And so the main thing for the person is them realizing as much as I understand that sleep is so important for them and the amount of sleep that they're getting enough restful sleep. And it's not just broken all the time and the quality of their sleep. What's it like? Um, you know, sometimes supplementing with things to help them sleep is, is important. Sometimes it can be something as simple as, you know, uh, passion flower or things like that, like simple nervines to really help them get into that restful state where they can actually sustain sleep at a, at a better level or get them into that sleep mode. And other things are like limiting screen time, like two hour, you know, like minimum an hour before bed, you know, not looking at your phone or TV or anything like that. Like literally if you could check into doing some journaling, reading a paper book, you know, I mean, things like that can really, really be helpful. If you're going to use a screen, of course, it's not still ideal, but you can turn it off. Of course, you can turn the blue light, you know, do the blue light filtering and whatever else. I still don't think it's perfect in that sense because um, you're using electronics, but, but if you can shut that down, you can get into that restful, that, that resting state quite a bit easier you can get into bed without feeling like you're wound up limiting caffeine intake in the in the second half of the day is really really important you know genetically we're all different some people can drink coffee till they go to bed we all know that person that can have espresso at 4 p.m and go to sleep at you know 8 30 but there's a lot of people who don't you know metabolize caffeine as quickly as others so beyond their early morning cup they really can't have any we know that there's people that are jittery you know, for the rest of the day, if that happens and their sleep is affected. So, so really kind of dialing in the factors that can help them get to bed at a good time. It's like, you know, what's your, are you getting breath? Are you getting air during the day? Like, are you moving, you know, kind of moving us into the next pillar, which is inspired movement. It's like movement can really help 
sleep. It's like, what are you doing on a daily basis that's really helping you open yourself up to what other possibilities could be there for your health and getting your, like, men, I find that movement and exercise really are like, it's like super important for the brain. Um, as much as it is, it people like to think of it as like, you know, they're to change their body composition or whatever else. I think of exercise as like brain as like a really important for your brain. And so in with your experience, can you kind of elaborate on, uh, after your traumatic brain injury and your fight in real estate with the, the light pole, um, how like your daily walks, bridging into biking, how that kind of helped your brain heal? Yeah, it's interesting. I think the, well, with traumatic brain injuries specifically, there's been a lot of research looking at the cross crawl movement, which is that the, the opposite arm and leg, you know, swinging out with each step, you know? So my right arm and my left leg at the same time, you know, as we're doing a walk, kind of like a soldier march, right? But more in a general, just swinging pattern that actually has been shown in research to actually help align the left and the right parts hemispheres of the brain again. So it actually helps with optimizing brain functioning. And we actually did some of that work with people who had struggled with brain problems in clinic, you know, or injuries, actually getting them to do the cross crawl. I didn't realize that the walking was so important. Looking back, I was cross crawling every time I was doing those 12 mile days with walking. So not only that, but also stimulating blood flow and getting good oxygen flow to my brain, right? So I think that movement, you know, when I have someone who's struggling with anxiety or depression, I'm like, well, what about those catecholamines, you know, the, the neurotransmitters that are for fight or flight, things like that. Maybe we should use some of those up with exercise. You know, you're built to move. We're, we're human species that hunted. We ran around all the time just for survival. And now we're in a state where we can sit around in our desks not even really have to go, we could work from home I and mean, we don't even need to move. And uh, it's very abnormal and, and unnatural. So moving in some way that kind of keeps you inspired to keep doing it is really important. If you like to play tennis, well, then that's going to be something and you have friends that do it. That's going to be something we're social creatures. So that's going to be something that you are going to probably maintain more than if you go like, well, I want to start playing basketball right now. And I don't know anybody who plays basketball. I'm just going to show up at the gym if you can get in together with a group of people and those people can keep bringing you back and they have, there's some accountability there and you start enjoying that, then that's a good thing. But if you're like, well, I'm just going to go lift weights in the gym, you know, by myself, it's like, well, how long are you going to do that? Willpower eventually fails. So do something that's going to keep you invested in it. And it's typically an accountability type system and something that you really enjoy. So. And I think that's why, like, I have to explain to people, like, you have to enjoy your exercise program. And we also have to uh, find a stimulus that is exercise, but isn't going to orthopedically backtrack the person. Like if the person's six weeks out of a total knee, I'm not going to go, well, you like to jog, so go jog. Uh, because their surgeon's probably going to crawl down my neck and rip out my organs. Uh, but finding like, Hey, like go get a belt and you can do some pool jogging, uh, in get them back to where eventually they can do what they like to do. But it's up to us as, as people's advisors in health to kind of go, okay, 
let's get creative with this and maybe find a homologue of what you like to do and what is safe so that we can get you stronger to the point to where you can do what you're passionate about. Uh, so I think it's important to have the balance of what is realistic versus what they're passionate about and kind of have that as the goal in mind to where their exercise is actually their strengthening and rehab to get to that point. Yeah. Nice. Very nicely said. Yep. It's really important. So yeah. And, and it's got to be inspired, you know, they've got to be inspired to do it. So I, as much as, you know, we both mentioned that it's like they, if they, if they love doing it, that's great, you know, to do something because you think it's cool or whatever else. I mean, it's probably not going to be something that you end up doing for a very long time. So we all know those things that we gravitate towards, do the things that you gravitate towards, you know, because walkers, I mean, walkers, I know people who walk every single day, you know, those people are, they are physically, they're robust, a lot of them. You know, they do whatever it is, five miles a day or something like that. Every morning they go for their walk. And it's like simple things that you can build into your routines that are really beneficial for you. Like, that's great. So anyway. And I want to take this point to kind of shout out to the the woman who's responsible for me being on the earth, my mom. Uh, because she was really, she was about 2% away on her ejection fraction from insurance covering a pacemaker, uh, because she had high blood pressure when she was pregnant with my brother. So she, her, her heart is enlarged. Uh, I always knew she had a big heart, but it's literally <laughs> bigger. Uh, and she's got some electrical abnormalities to where she kind of has to carry her, her card in her pocket saying, Hey, if you do an EKG on me and this wave is flipped, I'm not having a heart attack. That's normal for me. Uh, but she is astounding her doctors because she goes into her cardiologist regularly just to be responsible. But my mom is like, she's, I got her a juicer for, for Christmas one year and she's making like green juices on Sundays and um, and she does five miles on the treadmill plus every single morning before work. And her numbers are in the normal levels now going from like, all right, you, we're going to have to do this surgery and implant a pacemaker inside of you to save your life to your normal human now on, on your testing. What the heck did you do? What drugs are you on? We want to study it. And she's like, I stopped drinking soda. Uh, I drink green juice for breakfast. Uh, and she just like, she walks five miles a day. So it's very impressive to see the turnaround that she took into her own hands with a little bit of information. Uh, in your exercise doesn't have to be sexy and high impact and high velocity. Like you don't need to be uh, someone who attracts half a million followers on Instagram with how cool and innovative your workout is. We are evolutionarily designed to move long distances at a slow pace. So let's act in accordance with our genetics and we will be healthy. Yes. Wow. That's an amazing story about your mom. She's, she's pretty impressive and she's just as I, that's where I got my stubbornness from, but I think that helps <laughs> us out uh, to where stubbornness and de determination are only separated by context. And she, she really just said, Hey, I don't want to be on meds. I don't want to have leads sticking out of my left shoulder. Uh, what can I do from a diet standpoint? And they're like, well, like 
your diet doesn't look bad. It's balanced, which drives yeah. me nuts. Right. Uh, but she's just like that. That's definitely our family thing to where if we dive into something, it's going to be 150% and we're going to tell every single person what we're doing to hold us accountable. We're going to drive everyone nuts. Like the, the vegan CrossFitter that walks into the bar, they're going to stand next to the, the urinal and next to you in the bathroom and tell you about it. Uh, but I'm, I'm very proud of her for taking the initiative and really improving her health. No, that's amazing. Totally. But, um, what do they say? There's a joke that, how do you know a person's a vegan? It's, uh, was it? Don't worry. They'll, uh, you know, don't worry. They'll tell you. Um, so, yeah, there, there was a, there's a restaurant in Austin that has these funny signs that they put out, uh, in front every day. It's called El Arroyo. They actually have like a Facebook page and books with all of them, uh, and said like a vegan and a CrossFitter walk into a bar, which one will tell you first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, <laughs> they're both going to come at you just, you know, and, uh, you're going to hear it probably at the same time. No, it's, it's interesting. So, you know, and I think this, t- you know, and I think inspired movement and attitude kind of run together too. And I think that having a healthy and happy attitude in life, there's a saying that I, a uh, slogan that I, I live by, and it's your, it's your attitude rather than your aptitude that determines your altitude in life. You know, that's, that's pretty awesome twist on a very famous James Maxwell quote. Okay. And his is just, it's simpler. It's your attitude determines your okay. altitude. Okay. So, but I like yours. Add in aptitude, you know, and I got that from uh, a speaker who, um, yeah, it was, I think it was Roger Sipe. Um, anyways, he was a motivational speaker and, uh, it was, it's, it's good be, and it's true. You know what I mean? We, we all like to think that we can do something, you know, we can do something to, determine our altitude in life and typically what it comes down to is your attitude i mean it's gonna change the way that you approach things it's gonna just change your result you know your resilience um you know if you're looking at things it's like how do you look at things is this something that's that's possibly something that you can accomplish or is this something that's totally out of your league that's totally out of the question you know or is it like where where are you in the realm of possibility and like wanting to um wanting to make a difference in, in your life. And do you, are you an optimist? You know, I, and I, I'm an optimist. So for me, it's a little bit more of like, I'm, I'm always looking for, I'm always looking for these amazing things that my clients are coming in with to really highlight and catch them on. Because I feel like people don't find enough of that stuff in their life that they can like look for and be like, Oh yeah, that is going right in my life. You know? So finding those things that are right in our lives and not taking emphasis away from those, but making sure that we really do highlight that stuff too is really important. Um, I think one in, back with inspired movement, tying this to attitude, I work at, uh, ultra marathons quite a bit, you know, as a volunteer and ran my first ultra this last December 50 K, but I work at, I, my goal is a 50 miler this next year. And, um, Nice. And I've worked, you know, at some hundred, like Western States, the one it's pretty much like the Grand Prix of hundred milers, um, starting at, in Squaw Valley at Lake Tahoe and ends in Auburn. And, uh, some of those races are just amazing. And the people that are running those things, I mean, I, I've never seen so much positive attitude and I'm like, it must be the movement. 
So that's where I always tie it to like moving is is so important for us and being physically active because it changes our brain chemistry. So yeah, and all of us are on this like evolutionary quest for dopamine and serotonin and we can either we can either achieve that through drugs, alcohol, uh watching porn all day or we can achieve that through exercise or a healthier uh, a healthier mindset but everybody's going to do it that's just human nature like that's what our that's our reward hormone and that's what our brain is in a constant quest to get spikes of so we can either do it with harmful illicit substances or with exercise and i i joke with some of my ultra runners because i treat some people that run up to 1500s a year um and i'm like okay if you didn't run there'd either be dead bodies in your backyard and you'd have human skin lampshades you'd like (laughs) be in jail for porn possession you'd be like you'd have track marks up your arms and your legs like you would be a very dopamine fiend human being if you didn't run ultra marathons for a living so i need to keep your your body in shape orthopedically so that you don't be a harm so you're not a harm to society amen to that for sure you know i'm 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 uh i'm interviewing two people i have them lined up on uh, i'm just starting my own podcast called the rise again podcast and um two of the people that i'm interviewing one is charlie engel and one is david clark and both of these gentlemen have come from totally abusive relationships with substances to turning their lives around and are insane ultra runners. Now, Charlie Engel ran across the Sahara. There was that documentary about running across the Sahara. And I mean, the guy does incredible stuff, ran across the U.S. Like, I mean, just what? You know, things that people are like, you know, they can't even fathom as real. And this is the stuff that they do now. And they're just positive lights to the world. They've like found their thing right? That allows them to be a productive, acceptable human person in society, not destructive to their own, in, to their own, you know, to its own end and to their own ways uh, and to themselves by doing something that's meaningful. And this is exactly what you're talking about with the, with ultra running. I've seen, I can't even, I can count on, I can't even count the number of people that I know who have been addicts in their previous life who are running now. Um, and that's something meaningful, you know, I mean, it's just what we're driven to do We're driven to do. And, and, you know, the thing is, is the proof is in the pudding, you know, is the destructive habit that you're doing or the habit that you're doing, is it giving you something positive as an outcome besides just the quick dopamine hit and the dopamine dump? Is it getting you like beyond the dopamine dump? What else are you getting from it? Is it a positive or a negative thing? It's like, well, we all know that, you know, we all know that, um, you know, drugs, substances like, you know, alcohol, pornography, all these things are very destructive. Okay. We know that, but it's like, well, so then we look and go, well, what is the outcome of ultra running or whatever else? It's like, well, besides a beat up body, I mean, you're going to cross the finish line of life a little bit used up, but that's no big deal. Right. That's what we're meant. That's what we're here for. Yeah. So rather wear out than rust out. Right. Exactly. I love that. That's a great, that's a great, a great statement. That's a Roosevelt quote. Uh, I'll give credit where credit is due. (laughs) That's a Roosevelt quote. Okay. Love it. So, 
Yeah, attitude can't be can't be better stated. And I think po- positive books. I mean, book that I read during my recovery from my TBI was um, The Slight Edge, and that book has changed my life. Uh, I have a big order placed. I give books like that to my clients because I want them to be have the possibility to achieve whatever they want in life, but they have to realize that the things in life that are worthwhile are not quick and easy, you know, things. They are long effort. They are, they're riddled with effort and they take time and it's definitely on the principles of compound interest. So, so is that your favorite attitude uh, book? uh, Attitude wise, I'm trying to think probably the one that transformed, that was really, really amazing for me in, in uh, I got this when I was selling door to door uh, after high school, I did a sales job that really transformed my life, really took me. But that was my attitude training in a summer. I really learned that, wow, life is everything what we make it to be. I would say that the the book that was really awesome that I, I got, which actually has a, relates to sports a lot, it's called Mind Gym. Mind Gym. Okay. And that's my, I think Mac Stevens, he wrote for the Arizona Republic, I think, for some time, a newspaper, but he wrote that book, I think. Was it Mac who wrote it? Oh, now I'm forgetting. Anyway, Mind Max Jim or Mind Gem? Jim. G Y M. Gary Mack? Yeah, Gary Mack, actually. Yes, Gary Mack. Yep. Thank you, so, Google. I think he, yeah, thank you, Google. So, um, you know, that that book was. Let me let me look here. I'm gonna pull it up too, just to make sure that I'm on the right. Um wait a second. Let me see here. Um uh, an athlete's inner guide to excellence. That looks like it's probably yet. He's probably kept updating it because the other one was uh, um, is an old book. It was an old hardcover book that I had. Yeah, this looks like it. I don't see too many too many other ones out there. So I don't have it on my. That must be it. Um, that book was really really cool because it. I would like read a chapter of that before I'd go take an exam in school. Just thinking about like my mindset right now is so. It's it's important. Like how I'm going to do on this test. Largely, large part of it is not what I know and what I've studied, but like my mindset going into this. So, you know, so that that kind of stuff really made a big difference. And biking across the country, thinking about the same thing, like where where's my head right now? Where are my thoughts? You know, are they on how I can, you know, positive positive things, or are they on the negative things? And you just invariably know your day goes good when you're in a positive state. And my patient flow, seeing patients and stuff like that goes amazing when I'm in a positive state and I've got something good on my mind and I'm thinking about the things I'm grateful for and uh, I'm content, you know, um, with the progress that I'm making for the day versus where I'm, you know, discontent or unhappy about something. I mean, everything can really slows down. So I think taking a daily having some kind of a daily practice for that is really important. And for me, it's waking up and uh, getting some physical activity in, in the morning. It really sets my, it regulates my mood for the rest of the day, big time. You know, I think that gratitude is a huge thing. They, they actually have a daily gratitude journal that they, they put out that Tim Ferriss has really pushed. Okay. Uh, I know that Gary Vaynerchuk is really like, they interviewed him. They're like, dude, you've got to be on Adderall or something. And he's like, F you in your face. Like I'm high on gratitude, man. I'm grateful uh, for everything that I have. And that recharges me more than any drug I could put in my mouth. And I think that's a very powerful thing because you can like, I'll, I'll feel like 
garbage in the middle of a workout and I'll be like, Hey, all four of my limbs work. I have patients that are amputees and have these palsies that they can't walk. And I'm grateful that all four of my limbs work, even though they hurt really bad right now in the middle of this workout. And it kind of resets your mind to where you think of the worst case scenario and you're far from that worst case scenario. And it just kind of gives you that little dopamine hit to get you through. Um, just totally, absolutely. It's, uh, I was just thinking about something you said, my, and my brain just took off, um, when you were mentioning something and I was talking to, was thinking about, um, you were talking about gratitude and you were talking about, man, your patients with like limbs that they don't have limbs. And you're like, man, I've got limbs. And, and my mind immediately went to biking across the country and thinking about the adversity that we have sometimes in life and trying to make something positive out of it too. And really realizing that when I had a, like, I, I was going to share with you the, um, um, I was going to share with you the, um, my bike trip blog when I biked from coast to coast and it was about 4,400 miles and I blogged the whole thing in like a, every four or five days. I wasn't really scientific or like religious about my timing on blogging, but I did it probably about every four or five days. And, um, and it was really a lot of fun because I, I wrote a summary on one of the last pages about like thing lessons learned from the bike trip and um, in there. And it was like headwinds cool you down, like headwinds, make you stronger. You know what I mean? There's a lot of things about, cause the biggest thing adversity was like head headwinds. Um, probably, you know, rain wasn't a big deal, but it was the headwinds and stuff like that. So just trying to like really get a list of, um, of things in your mind on your day to day practice, kind of having a list of go-to things that you can tell yourself and be like, Hey, like this is, this is good for me. Like, this is what I'm looking for in my life. Like things that are worthwhile don't come easy. You know what I mean? Like, and um, no shortcut to anywhere worth going. That's right. Absolutely. There's no shortcut to anywhere worth going, you know, and it's, uh, you know, you got to keep the, you know, selling books. It was the answer to every, the answer to every problem lies behind the next door, you know? So it's like not focusing on the no that I just got, but the yes, that's to come or okay. For every, you know, for every yes, there's so many no's that I need to get through. So that was good. I got through one more. No, you know what I mean? It's kind of like, the whole mindset you have in with what you're doing, it's like with if we're not failing enough, we're obviously we're typically we're not trying enough. So if we're not trying enough, well, we need to amp up the amount that we're trying and the amount that we're failing and things, or the difficulty that we're having. You know, everything shouldn't be easy because if it is, well, then we're not probably not pushing ourselves in ways that we should be pushing ourselves. Um, so. Yeah. Interesting stuff. I think, and then the growth mindset kind of goes right into that. It's like, well, like we need everyone that I'm, that I work with too, talking with them. It's like, what, what are you working towards in your life? Like, what do you want out of life? And if you don't have any, if people don't have anything that they're working towards, well, we often need to figure something out because they'll often notice that that's one of the stagnating factors for people is just living for here and now. And if all we're living for is here and now, well, what's going to keep you from falling into all those you know, dopamine traps and things that aren't really going to serve you, you know, so really giving you a long-term outlook and perspective on life. And it's like, you know, we're either green and growing or ripe and rotting, right? There's like that whole quote. And I, and I really believe that it's like, are we either, that's where the whole slight edge comes in that book by 
you know, and, and it's either we're on that upward curve or on the downward slope. And that's the differences in the very small things that are so easy to do and they're so easy not to do. So, yeah. And I think it's important to have that, uh, they call it the commander's intent, like your, your guiding compass to where, uh, there's a lot of things that will change in your life. But if your commander's intent is set on your kind of a collection of your, your morals, your ethics, your goals, and that kind of lumps into, uh, this is my commander's intent for my life. And if it's anything that's going to violate that or take me backwards in that, that's not going to be a, a habit that I invest a lot of time or effort in. Beautifully said too on that one. I really like that. And, you know, and going into like, you know, with, with, with a growth mindset and purpose kind of lumping this stuff in, like you said, together. And I think I like to have people go into their values in office. Sometimes when I'm doing like a session, I'll find like, okay, wait a second. We need to go back to counseling, like 101. We need to figure out what this person, what makes this person, what drives this person? Do they even know what drives them? Can they put a finger on it? And sometimes it, it having them, giving them that realistic viewpoint of going, okay, instead of just determining whether or not, you know, you've been a success or a failure based on some external influences or outside other people's ideas about certain things and, or looking to the media or whatever else, why not know what your own values are in your life? And so doing values work with people is really important where it's just pretty much, I like we in, you know, in a 20 minute session, we can pretty much come up with what their values are. And uh, it's a guided activity that we kind of go through together. And it's really a lot of fun because you kind of see the light bulb go off. And I'm like, what if instead of just thinking about, you know, your life through what other the society's values are or what they we think they are, why don't we have your own values and your own compass? And at the end of the day, instead of you being depressed about something that didn't match up with society's values going wait, I lived in accordance with my five values today or whatever. And I lived a successful, like I had a great day. And so really putting it in, giving yourself some own context for the way that you live your life, whether or not it was a success or a failure, instead of being outcome is oftentimes you can't determine outcomes, but I can determine whether I did the work that was needed, you know, for me to, you know, maybe, maybe it was the certain number of sales calls I did or as a person or as a salesperson, or, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's the, did I, did I love my family? Did I do, did I, did I eat nourishing food and get some physical activity today? You know, did I positively interact with people today and possibly, you know, inspire someone to make a change in their life? You know, did I help someone out of a little bit of suffering today? Well, you can't always, you know, did, did I try? You know, was that, you know, whether I was working or not, did I give someone a smile? You know, what are the simple things that um, you can do as a core, you know, that are in line with your values? So working in working in values work is really uh, important. And then, you know, like connections, I think I think of connections just like the positive people you have around you in your life. I mean, there's this saying, you know, you're never going to be better than the five people that you have around you. So really surround yourself with positive people that you want to be more like, you know, and you might think, well, those people probably don't want anything to do with me. Well, make yourself someone that they want to be around. 
you know, and then start, you know, reaching out and spending more time with those people who really inspire you, move you, and uh, people who you feel are influencers in your life. Spend more time with them because they will definitely change the trajectory of your life. You know, we, we like to live in our little silos and, you know, with our, with the people that we do things with typically, but it's like, we don't, we often don't realize that it's only like one phone call or one email or one coffee chat away from being able to be with those people and spend more time with those people that we really are really important to us that could change our lives. Yeah. And I think that with your podcast that you're going to interview these people, they definitely have a brand new circle of connections from like their substance abuse days to their ultra running days. They're definitely hanging around with different people and it's your human right to like surround yourself with different people. Like, yeah, you're not abandoning a child. You're, you're choosing which people you spend your time with, just like you choose the time, the time that you spend on certain activities to, either take yourself in a negative direction or a positive direction. Yes. Yeah. And that's actually, it's so good that, you know, I think everything happens for a reason, Nick, and you really brought up something. It would be really fun to go through people's, their own pillars in their own way, kind of take people through the pillars in kind of the interview setting for the podcast. You know what I mean? Kind of give people some food for thought. Like what's your, what is your own, outlook on fasting, you know, or nutrition, like, what do you do, you know, and kind of asking through this lens too might be really helpful, because asking people about those connections is going to be a really, th those are two authors that, that you know, the, the ones I mentioned, I recommend their books so, so highly, because they really, like, I, I mean, they're emotional for me, because, well, Charlie Engel's funny, like, he's, he's humorous, he's got a good sense of wit, um, his book is Running Man, and uh, I mean, he ran like 135 miles, the Death Valley Ultra, you know that uh -huh. that uh, bad bad water. He ran that. Yeah, he he was in prison for you know falsely, you know, like he was put in prison for essentially no reason, um, and he ended up running bad water in prison because he wanted to um, do something meaningful. It's kind of funny the whole book and the way it's written and all that and how life works in prison and the currency in prison. I think it was stamps, you know, stamps could get you anything. You know what I mean? It was like the currency. It was really funny. It was just his whole experience too. And it's also, you know, very, very, um, very awakening to, uh, on another level. And then David Clark's book out there, his rec recovery from drug and alcohol, you know, abuse and, you know, culminating in like, uh, he's running and he's like, he's running a quad Leadville, which is four Leadville races back to back. He, he like, that's what he set out to do the quad Leadville, you know, on like the, whatever day of sobriety or year of sobriety. And he's like, and he broke down in that race. I remember that. And he was like, where does this stop? Like, where am I going to, am I going to like run myself into the ground? What am I doing to myself? So there's that whole wake up call too of like, okay, we can push anything to excess if we really want to, you know, we're all, we're, some of us are really prone to pushing things to excess. And so really um, finding those things that, you know, ground us, get back to our values and be like, hey, wait a second, what am I doing this for? What are my values? What is success for me? Is it my this external accomplishment or achievement? Or is it 
something that I'm got just if I if I do if I live the certain way in my life then that's been a success regardless of the outcome. So yeah, but dude, awesome man! You you are uh, you're an inspiration to many people. I really love the way that you were able to like lead. You know, you you kind of led me through the. You know, you just lead lead people and their stories through the way that you did it. I don't know. I, I really respect the way that you and uh, and love the way that you run your podcast. You bet, man. And you make it you make it pretty easy because all I have to do is tip a domino and you run with it. So, um, anything else that you want to cover, I will put the the blog uh, in the show notes so that the listeners can reference that. Um, and we'll make sure that we put your, your Instagram and, uh, and, and make sure that you do check out, uh, the rise again podcast. I'm sure that'll be coming to, uh, you're going to post it on multiple platforms. Um, um, yep, I will. Um, and I'll do that. So there's, uh, I'm going to be putting it, I'll put it on like Stitcher and, um, Stitcher and, uh, iTunes um, what are some of the other ones? I, I think I'm going to use that. I'll put Google it probably. Play, on four, I think. Okay. Probably on four different platforms or something like that. I can't remember all the different ones. I'm going to use a, a Libsyn. L Y uh, Libsyn is a platform that will like put it on different platforms, help you put it on different um, places. So you don't have to do it all yourself, cool. but yeah, I'm definitely going to do that. And that should be up and going by the end of the month for sure. So I need to record my, I'm going to have three episodes to launch and uh, I'm super excited about it because I've always wanted to take stories about people who've risen from the ashes and uh, you'll see the logo and you'll be like, Oh, I got it. The cover for it. And you'll be like, uh-huh. Okay. That makes sense. So awesome. Thanks so much, Nick. You are, uh, you're an inspiration to many and I love what you're doing, uh, the path you're taking in life. And I, I look forward to connecting, um, making it making it you know down to texas or whatever i will definitely be giving you a shout you head to az definitely let's connect man